The Fourth Wall, Episode 4, Jeff Gomez. You're listening to The Fourth Wall, a podcast that takes you beyond the screen or the page and brings you into our conversations with the creative people behind your favorite movies, TV shows, comics, and more. My name is Seamus Kelly, and I'm a staff writer here at Denim Geek. I mostly write about Power Rangers for the website, and today we're going to be talking about something that's kind of affiliated to Power Rangers. Not exactly. Most people in America know what Power Rangers is. You know, they morph, turn into a giant robot, fight a giant monster. Well, today we're going to be talking about Ultraman, who's in the sort of same family of shows, at least in Japan. But people in America may not be that familiar with Ultraman. Yeah, it aired in the 60s and on reruns for a long time, but Ultraman has had kind of a difficult time breaking into America. So in case you don't know what Ultraman is... He's a giant guy, shoots lasers out of his hands, has a little flashing thing on his chest. That means he can only survive for about three minutes, depending on the series. And uh, he fights giant monsters. But why has Ultraman not been able to make it to America in a big way? Well, there's a lot of different reasons. But Ultraman is set to be making a big splash in America very soon, courtesy of Jeff Gomez at Starlight Runner Entertainment. Now, don't worry, hardcore Ultraman fans. Super Aya Productions in Japan is still the ones who are making Ultraman, but Jeff Gomez and Starlight Runner Entertainment are helping them create basically a big mythology book all about Ultraman, taking into account every episode, movie, comic, anything and everything. And they're going to help them basically find ways to break into other parts of the world, not just Japan, but America all over the place. And this isn't the first time Jeff Gomez and Starlight Runner Entertainment have done this sort of thing. They've worked on other big franchises like Pirates of the Caribbean or Transformers. And we talked about all that in here, but... We mostly focused on Ultraman because it's very exciting to hear how this is all being done through something that Jeff calls transmedia. So take a listen to the conversation we had, and I think you'll be as fascinated as I was. All right, why don't you introduce yourself to the fine people at Den of Geek? Just tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, anything you want to say. Well, uh, I am hugely uh, thrilled to be here. I'm a fan, Seamus, and, and so I, I love the idea of being on Den of Geek. My name is Jeff Gomez. I'm the chief executive officer of Starlight Runner Entertainment. We're a New York uh, City-based production company, and we specialize in uh, taking uh, huge story worlds, uh, often uh, Hollywood blockbusters or um, uh, video game worlds, and helping our clients to extend them across uh, multiple media platforms. Transmedia storytelling is, is one way of putting it. And what are some of the different ways that might consist of? Like, what are the different places that you uh, help to expand it? Uh, well, for example, uh, Microsoft and, uh, will come to us with Halo and say, hey, Halo is doing great as a video game, but we want it to do better uh, across different media platforms. Um, and what we do is we, we analyzed uh, what the strengths of Halo were and what the, the, the most interesting story elements uh, were in the video games and, uh, and helped to uh, further develop the backstory and uh, further fine-tune um, how the characters could be relatable and then helped Microsoft to, to kind of extend those narratives across uh, different media. So you had better comic books and better novels and animation, and there's an upcoming TV show that are all infused with what we loved about Halo. 
And we've done this with Pirates of the Caribbean and Men in Black, Spider-Man and Avatar, Transformers, Ninja Turtles. Uh, it's, it's something that um, we do well because it kind of started with me as a kid loving these giant uh, sprawling uh, fantasy and science fiction universes. So with the company, is it that you guys end up writing some of this stuff or is it just making suggestions to the people who come to you saying, oh, maybe you want to focus on this thing and, make, and turn that into a book? Or is it, is it broader or is it more specific? If you love this sort of stuff, it's the ultimate fantasy, Seamus, because what we're doing is sometimes we're, we're given a treatment because there's an upcoming uh, a movie uh, or sometimes we're given a screenplay. And we look at that and we go, well, you know, that's that's fun and interesting, but it's it's two hours or two hours and twenty minutes of content, right? It's got a beginning, middle, and end. What you need is not just a, a linear narrative; you need a story world. So we help to to flesh out that universe, that world, and um, and create a past and create a, uh, an aspect of the world that doesn't appear on the screen and uh, create a future um, so that you can uh, play out aspects of that super narrative on a video game platform or in novels or comic books and things like that. So yes, there is uh, some creativity involved in, in writing up that super world. That content, by the way, is put into what these, these giant books we call mythology documents. And, um, and so our clients are often bestowed with these 100-page or 300-page or 1,000-page mythologies uh, that are fully illustrated and are like the secret guides to the universes that we work on. And then it's all that, like, so within those like giant, sometimes thousand pages, page long guides, is it just all of you guys coming up with that? Or do you work sometimes with people who are on the franchise to develop that or like look deeper into uh, past material to create that? Uh, all of the above. Um, the first thing we have to do is make sure that, that our clients or our partners know who we are and, and come to fundamentally trust us. And, and that's a, a, a deep interview process. So when we work with these franchises, we're working with the franchise visionary. So we'll sit down with James Cameron to talk about Avatar and get in deep into what the themes and the messages and the intricacies of that universe uh, are all about. And then along the way, uh, as we're helping to, to develop things, we're taking hints and clues that we see in screenplays or that we see in the, um, uh, the development process, and we're fleshing them out. So our creative work goes hand in hand with, with little hints and clues that we find in the material. And then do you find when you give these documents to people, how much of the documents end up being used? Uh, and I'm, I'm sure it can vary from uh, property to property, but generally how much do you think ends up being used? Oh, it, it absolutely uh, uh, depends. Um, for Halo, everything <laughs> that we contributed uh, has been used in one form or another, and that's really satisfying. Um, for Transformers, uh, a, a lot of the, the stuff that we contributed was used in, in the comic books and the um, uh, animation, but not as much in the, the feature films that Michael Bay uh, directed. In Men in Black, a lot of the work that we did informs the very next movie that's uh, in production right now. So that's going to be exciting to watch. For sure, for sure. So let's. So we're here to talk a lot today about Ultraman, right? So I want to go back 
way back. So I sure. want to know. I want to know about your history with Ultraman because from what I've learned, you've been a fan for a very long time. Oh man, <laughs> it, it, what a dream come true for you to to have your your childhood hero be the thing that you get to to work on is it's just awesome. For me, growing up in New York City in the the late 1960s and early 70s, um, I, I was a little different from all the other guys. <laughs> I was always dreaming. I was always looking for stories that I could immerse myself in and escape into for long periods of time. A little Bugs Bunny cartoon was not going to do it for me. Right. <laughs> um, and um, uh, I found that Japanese uh, uh, pop culture, things like early anime, and like uh, Kimba the White Lion and Gigantor and Marine Boy, those were really interesting because they were serious and because there was a, a serialized quality uh, to them. Characters remembered what happened in the, in the previous episode. That, that really didn't happen in American children's content or even adult content for that matter, unless it was like a soap opera. So um, uh, I, I love that stuff. But even more awesome was being able to go to the movies and, and watch Godzilla, uh, see these gigantic, powerful monsters moving through Tokyo and um, uh, just being awesome. And those movies, there were so many of them, and they were kind of interlocked and interrelated as well. And yet they were rare. You know, only once in a long while did I get to see uh, a Godzilla movie in the theater and then I had to wait. There was no media, there was no toys, there was no content at that time. So one day along comes this show, Ultraman. And here it is on television every week. And there's a, a giant monster. And then there's this kind of incredible silvery angelic kind of being <laughs> um, who has all these powers and who's protecting humanity um, and clashing with the monster uh, on these miniature sets, which I didn't, uh, I just uh, believed in them. I believed in everything. I just loved it, man. It was, it was awesome. And it was on my TV in my living room every week. And, and what could be better than that? And then, so with you, so you watched the original Ultraman, of course, have you, did you keep up with the franchise as you got older? Well, um, I, I did for a while. It was spotty. It, it, Ultraman was on and off uh, television every now and then. But, you know, my, uh, my dad moved away in, when I was a child. He moved to Puerto Rico. And Puerto Rico, I would visit him there over the summer times and, and be desperate for something to watch on TV that I could relate to at all. It was all in Spanish. I didn't speak the language. Uh, when suddenly there would be these Ultraman TV shows. Um, so Ultra 7, Ultraman Taro, um, Ultraman Leo, these late 60s and early 70s Ultraman TV shows would just uh, come up one at a time, and there, there would be everything that I could possibly love because there was the serialized quality, the fact that all these shows took place in the same uh, universe, there was a continuity to them, the, the monsters would sometimes reoccur. Um, the different Ultraman characters had different powers and abilities. There were different squads of humans that would kind of try to support Ultraman in, in achieving his goals. It was awesome, and, and I, I, I didn't care that I didn't understand 
Spanish. I got it. Um, and therefore, I was allowed to follow these series because there are there were dozens of Ultraman TV series over the past 50 years. So tell me a little bit about how your company was approached either by Subarai or you guys approached Subarai. Tell me a little bit about the story about how you guys have uh, formed this new partnership. Well, you know, the concept of media mix, the, the fact that um, stories can start on one media platform and then continue on other media in Japan, that, that started in the, in the 1960s. And, and I just loved the idea that you can explore these heroes and their pasts and their, uh, their companions would have their own series and, and, and things like that. I love that. And it influenced what Starlight Runner does, you know, for a living. So it had been a goal for me these past 10, 15 years to kind of go back to Japan and work with, with the uh, filmmakers and TV show uh, makers that I love and work with some of my favorite characters. We got close a couple of times, but the Japanese, it's such a different culture that it was, um, it was just not to be. Uh, more recently, I happened to make a friend with the people who run the licensing group. It's a, it's a company in Los Angeles run by uh, Danny Simon. And uh, just in conversation, because I love licensing. Licensing is, is, to me, a way to help tell stories on different media platforms. Mm-hmm. And if you have the right kind of licensing, you can grow a franchise and get something going like Star Wars or, or the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So uh, a licensing is, is my friend. And here was Danny Simon saying, oh, yeah, uh, by the way, I'm, I'm talking to Subaraya Productions about uh, Ultraman and maybe uh, reintroducing the character to the United States because he hasn't been around for, for a while. And I said, Danny, if that's the case, you have to take me with you. <laughs> At least let me sit in the room with you while you negotiate this deal because, um, uh, you know, I love Ultraman. And believe it or not, somehow he was able to finagle uh, the meeting. And I went with him. And um, instead of just being a fan, I really did my homework and prepared a presentation about how we work and how we would work with, uh, with Ultraman and kind of galvanize the mythology of Ultraman to make the, the franchise clear to uh, Americans and the international market because it's, it's kind of complicated. There's, you know, there's like 800 episodes of Ultraman yeah. and, and the, the it, it kind of rebooted itself over and over and over again. So it's, it can be quite confusing. The characters, if you're not used to them, they look very much the same. They look quite similar to each other. So distinguishing them and distinguishing that mythology, I felt was really important to a successful uh, licensing and merchandising uh, program so that we can relaunch Ultraman all over the world. And they got it. Uh, the Japanese uh, uh, at Subaraya Productions just said, you know what, you're right. What's it like to work with you guys? And we laid it out, and we we made a deal. It was one of the fastest deals we'd ever made. So can you give me a little bit of insight about the sort of things that you, I guess going into more depth about the things that you talked with Subaraya about in that initial meeting, the kind of ways that you talked about of expanding Ultraman out and especially telling Americans about getting them to understand the franchise? 
Sure. Um, it was really, it had to do with making sure that they understood that we understood Ultraman. And a lot of that had to do with the understanding that over the years, um, the franchise has skewed younger and younger, right? So, so it, it, the original Ultraman, they were kind of dark, you know? Yeah. Um, they were reflective of, of Japan's political situation. They, they still were recovering from the war. Giant monsters represented these, these massive kind of anxieties that the country was, was suffering. And, and here was Ultraman, kind of the uber uh, Japanese, this kind of futuristic symbol that descended from the skies and made everything right. Um, in fact, if you watch closely, Ultraman tries not to, to harm the monster, at least at, at, at the start, and only destroys the monster or vanquishes the beast as a last resort. And that, that speaks to this, this notion of the positivity of technology, the aspiration to courage and hope and kindness, um, and to be able to kind of share those insights with Sakurai Productions allowed for them to uh, realize that we were sensitive to uh, not just Ultraman as a kind of superhero, but Ultraman as a symbol that was still relevant and ought to be communicated to the rest of the world to this day. And I think that's what, why they responded to, uh, to the pitch. And then in doing research for that pitch, was it a matter of just you watching a bunch of episodes and sort of picking up on themes or did you do research with uh, interviews with creative staff from the show in previous years? Like what was the, what was the whole research process for that? Like it, the first meetings were really truly the, um, the benefit of being a, a highly experienced nerd. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was an informed geek. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, um, and so those were my observations. You know, I'm, I'm a storyteller and I understand the building blocks of story and I understand epic storytelling. So, so if you look at Ultraman as, as a single epic, a 50 year story, that's awesome. When, when you have something that lasts that long, it becomes representative of the people who, who cherish and celebrate that story. You know, so I, I was able to make those observations with the understanding that all epics from all over the world and throughout history are symbols of the nations that create those epics, you know, and they got it. They understood that. The, the, the trip to convince them to, to work with Starlight Runner was to say, you know what, that story, which is emblematic of, of the Japanese people, can be uh, also emblematic of, of the world. We all need that story. Uh, we, we all need to, to uh, embrace courage, hope, and kindness, which was kind of the, the grand essence of Subaraya Productions. And we need to think about new ways to deal with the kaiju of the world. Um, you know, these, these awful tyrannical intrusions, uh, uh, you know, global warming, uh, uh, you know, the disbalance in, in the world. And if you get that about Ultraman, you can understand how to make Ultraman uh, accessible and marketable to everyone in the world. 
after that, then yes, we go into uh, Subaraya Productions, which is the super fun part, uh, and spend many days with with all the people who made uh, make the show currently, and and get to understand uh, the challenges they face and the aspirations they have for the franchise. And what are because I I had read in one of the articles that was talking about what you guys are going to be doing. You had mentioned doing that whole deep dive into the Ultraman franchise. Tell me a little bit about that, about talking with the people who are working on the franchise now or doing invent or just doing research on the show itself. Tell me some of the things you've uncovered or just some of the process in that. Sure. It's, it's absolutely fascinating because um, the Japanese have no qualms <laughs> about uh, the fact that uh, these shows are the hubs of a kind of licensing and merchandising industry. Ultraman generates $50 million a year just in Japan in toys and various kinds of licenses. You could say that Ultraman's kind of like Mickey Mouse. Yeah. Um, uh, he's he's a, sim- a symbol uh, that every Japanese person uh, knows and, and kind of loves. Uh, but in recent years, the, the show itself has uh, become less interesting to teenagers and adults and and more interesting to very young children. Uh, So if that's the case, how do we examine Ultraman as a potential license and and merchandising property for the rest of the world? Do we keep it super kid-like or are there other aspects to be explored? And what was interesting was that when we talked to the various stakeholders in Ultraman in, in Japan, uh, there's an interest in, in making the franchise accessible uh, to uh, many different kinds of markets and having it be more universal so that it's, it's kind of like this, this family property, uh, more like what uh, the Walt Disney Company puts out. And so that made it even more fun for us because uh, we don't have to uh, concentrate on very, very young uh, children enjoying the property. We can uh, um, uh, talk to potential partners here in the United States who want to make stories designed for uh, older people. Do you feel that the Ultraman brand is already doing a little bit of that with that new manga they've been putting out and the new anime that's coming to Netflix, I believe, around the world? I should have known that you were well informed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, the answer is yes. Um, uh, I think you're seeing the first steps being taken uh, to doing exactly that. Uh, the Netflix anime is going to be super cool and uh, falls into the purview of the kinds of things that uh, we're interested in for the, the franchise. And I think you're going to be seeing more of that. Even in Japan, there's going to be a new uh, program uh, that focuses on some of the darker uh, Ultraman characters, um, a, a sort of a, a suicide squad of dark Ultraman characters who will go on adventures. Um, so that skews a little older, too. And so what are some of the biggest challenges in bringing Ultraman to America? Um, the challenges are really interesting, and, and it's funny because um, – uh, some people I've talked to were hesitant. They were like, well, you know, Ultraman, uh, this Pacific Rim, which has giant robots and kaiju, and that's done okay, but it's not a smash hit. And um, uh, aren't you afraid of it being confused with Power Rangers? And, and that recent movie didn't quite uh, become a blockbuster either. 
and um, and we don't we have to be careful about uh, Japanese properties uh, being launched in the United States. They 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 uh, the live action movies like Ghost in the Shell. Uh, didn't really do good. There, there's uh, this this notion of, of whitewashing that you have to be careful about. And look, those are all caveats and and precautions that are well considered. You know, the, those are things we have to think about. But the the fun of working with Ultraman is okay. How do we get around that? Yeah. <laughs> how do how do we tackle those challenges and still make something that's really fun and compelling and engaging? And the bottom line is that that's what we do for a living. We take apart those challenges and look into what was awesome uh, specifically about Ultraman and make sure that that is what infuses the new storytelling. Okay, so um, so what what are the the incredible things about uh, Ultraman? Well, you you get to um, a human being gets to use some kind of device and, and suddenly becomes possessed uh, with this being from another world and grows to like a hundred feet tall. So the notion of becoming a giant is an awesome notion. Mm. It's, it's uh, um, not the most common of, of these kinds of uh, superhero characters. There's the notion of, of how the world today would realistically contend with these kinds of situations. Pacific Rim was was kind of more fanciful and took place in a distant future. What what would it be like now, today? What kind of balances would have to occur? How would our the world community respond to these kinds of, of situations? Well, to me, that's really uh, intriguing. You know, what do they symbolize? What aspect of ourselves um, exists in both the kaiju and these Ultraman heroes. Those other properties are not really dealing with that, and that's something that I think is is super intriguing for Ultraman. And this is definitely true for Ultraman, like you had mentioned, but it's true for a lot of franchises, especially ones that sort of get pigeonholed as kids' brands. Do you ever worry that some people are just not going to take it seriously, or is part of like the, the challenge for you is overcoming that and making people take these things? I mean, seriously, you know, it's still giant monsters and everything like that, but making people be invested in these properties? Um, what is the secret to geek love? Mm. What is the secret to us becoming truly fans with a story world that we stumble upon? It has to do with our empathy, with our ability to, to look at the inner lives of these characters and see ourselves in them. And it also has to do with, uh, in this day and age, with being invited you know, mm-hmm. um, and that's something that Starlight Runner really specializes in. We're building this story world, but we're not going to do it without you. You know, um, uh, fortunately, with regard to Ultraman, I'm already a member of all the Ultraman fan pages. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, so I'm one of them and I hear what they're saying. I hear what their concerns are. I hear what it is that they love to see. And that influences what it is that we're doing and creating a story world that invites your creativity, invites your participation is something where where we're basically building a home for you to come and live in. And that to me is a secret to to creating something that's different from uh, what a lot of the kind of corporate approaches to uh, movie making and franchise building 
have been about. Uh, there is no Ultraman without his fans. Mm-hmm. And, and that, to me, is the, the secret to making this um, uh, super cool. And then, so speaking of fans, with and, and any of these big geek franchises have fans who have very particular ideas of how, of how things they should be or how there should be 500 Ultraman in this movie. What's the, the balance between giving fans what they want, but also making it accessible to a more general audience who is not, you know, invested in, say, 50 years of a franchise? It, it, a lot of it has to do with some forethought. You'll see some uh, content that's out there that's um, that that would attract fans, uh, kind of burn out because there was uh, kind of a, a short-term thinking to it. So, um, especially on television, you'll see characters uh, making the the same mistakes over and over again, year on year. You know, certain superhero characters. Um, you, you'll see uh, repetitive kinds of villains and, and, and so forth because those showrunners have not thought about what the epic aspect of the narrative is all about. What is what is the long term vision and and um, process of actualization for this hero over the course of, of years? I found that uh, with franchises like uh, Harry Potter, um, with franchises like the Marvel Cinematic Universe as it's unfolded over the past decade or so, there have been these kind of big, long-term, epically structured narratives that don't get too repetitive, that take into account fan concerns and fan questions. And when you infuse that into... Uh, something that's that's being innovated for the, the modern era, like uh, Ultraman, people will stay with you, you know? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And so what would you say is like a good example, either something that you've worked on or something that you've seen that really took fan concerns and questions into mind? Uh, well, um, a, a part of what we did with Men in Black, for example, was was fascinating. Uh, we worked with Sony Pictures and um, and examined the Men in Black story world, and we took into account the animated series and the and novels that certain people didn't even know existed. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and um, and we asked ourselves this question: Is there a Men in Black without necessarily having Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones at the center of that story? And when we examine the men in black organization and and the the history of the organization that was hinted at and alluded to across those movies we discovered that there was a really rich and wonderful police procedural universe <laughs> in in men in black so our answer was uh, you know what it can survive without those different characters because the universe is so rich and compelling you just need a, a cool, interesting new characters um, uh, to help propel it. And you need to take your focus from this one precinct in New York and perhaps look at it as a more global organization. After all, the men in black are, are uh, dealing with the entire planet Earth. And guess what? The next uh, uh, men in black film is called Men in Black International. And those are, that's exactly the kind of thing that, that they're going to be exploring in that movie. So you see, it's, it's a matter of, of finding hints and clues within the richness of the story world that you're, you're working with 
and projecting it and amplifying it without losing that, that core functionality. It's a police procedural that's made funny because the criminals are aliens. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that is maintained. Everything else uh, uh, just gets amplified and, and turned into something epic. And that's how we work. We work with uh, all of these uh, franchises that way. And in, yeah, so like with other franchises you worked on, is it just a matter of basically pulling on these sort of story threads and figuring out, okay, like basically going to the company and saying, all right, here are like these, like, I don't know, I'm just going to arbitrarily say like 20 different avenues you could go with this story or one avenue or whatever else. Is that kind of like a, one of the main things that you guys will do? Um, of course, absolutely. Uh, but before we get to that point, we have to understand what makes uh, a character and, and the world around that character special. Mm. Um, what, is the, what are the unique qualities? And when you look at that from this perspective, you're really talking about myth. You're mm. talking about archetype. You're, you're talking about the fundamental building blocks of story. Um, so if you're looking at Spider-Man, which we've done, you're going to say, well, you know, uh, there are a couple of movies in, in that franchise that didn't quite hit the bullseye, you know? So what was the problem? And that's an assignment that we're given. And, uh, and could you imagine? So here we are taking apart <laughs> these movies and these scripts and, and this character, Peter Parker and Spider-Man, to, to understand exactly how uh, this character works and why the movie that surrounded this character didn't quite click um, because, well, you know, it didn't reflect the things that people truly love and relate to in Spider-Man. And when we make those adjustments and the advice is listened to, you get something like uh, Spider-Man into the Mm -hmm. Spider-Verse, which I just thought was wonderful and it's wonderful, not necessarily because Peter Parker is the hero of that movie, but because that movie understands fundamentally who Spider-Man is and communicates it in a way that's fun and thrilling and reinforces the things that we need to get out of Spider-Man. <laughs> Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. And for and for a film like that, it also, what you were talking about earlier, kind of like with Men in Black, it opens up multiple universes in that in that film's case and lets people sort of imagine that it's like, oh, I could be Spider-Man in this universe or I could be a different Spider-Man in this universe. And you feel like things like that kind of excite the audience and makes them into those big uh, geek fans. Look at how uh, wonderfully it opens up that universe and makes people excited to explore it as opposed to a scene in an earlier live action Spider-Man movie where um, uh, Spider-Man is walking through or, or some characters walking through a hall and sees all the equipment of the super villains to come uh, in various glass cases. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that feels a little more like we're forced to, to understand that this is a franchise, yes. um, you know, uh, it, it's it's more it feels more mechanical, more corporate when things are kind of jammed down our throats that way. When you have something in, in the into the Spider Verse that is organically opening up all these wonderful uh, possibilities. Legit. So then, going back to Ultraman. So where are you? Where is your company and you at now 
with the franchise? Are you still doing these deep dives and coming up with these mythology documents? Like, where are you? Where are you at right now? That's exactly where we're at. We're in the process of generating uh, the mythology documents. These are are unique tools because we're going to need to show our prospective partners what it is that they're licensing. And they need to understand clearly who these characters are and what they're about and so forth and how they relate to one another. And this is a huge, complex uh, universe. So we're as geek as they get. (laughs) We are looking at every single episode and we are documenting the monster, the equipment being used, the the spaceships, the laser guns, (laughs) the supporting characters, what happens in the show and doing that for for close to 800 episodes, as well as like a a dozen or so feature films that have Mm -hmm. been made in the interim. And then what we're going to do in this particular case is is create kind of uh, sub booklets that are devoted to individual TV series. So if you like Ultraman Taro, versus Ultraman Leo, you'll be able to take the Taro booklet out of our mythology and study who Taro is and license him mm-hmm. <laughs> as opposed to Leo uh, and, and so forth. So it's, it's actually quite complex. Um, it involves about a dozen people uh, here at Starlight Runner. We're using um, uh, excellent freelance writers who are assisting us with it and one or two super fan experts to make sure that we've got our, our nomenclature right. Our taxonomies need to be correct. <laughs> um, our cosmology, how the universe works, has to be spot on. And, um, and so we're, we're pulling from everywhere to make sure that that uh, works out. And is it a matter of, especially with something like this, is it that like you have like a sort of general overview of what Ultraman as a brand is, and then you go very specifically into each and every season of the, of the series? That's it exactly. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's not easy. In, in this particular case, there is a language barrier. Mm-hmm. Um, so we need to um, work with translators. Um, not everybody at Subaraya speaks English. Some of the uh, television uh, shows have not been uh, translated into English in, in quite a long time. So they, they were looking at some of them without any subtitles. So we're bringing in Japanese speaking uh, people to, to help us here in New York to document these shows. Of course, of course. And then, cause you had talked about trying to make it, you know, it's a giant mythology document. Is it trying to place all of these series within a same sort of continuity or is it just a matter of explaining what each one is? The, the, the beauty of Japanese storytelling is that there is a cosmology to almost every kind of narrative that they've come up with. And so in the Ultraman universe, even though there have been multiple iterations and reboots, there is this mythos that we, if you dig deep enough, you can find it, where the home world of the Ultraman aliens, because that's what they really are. They're not robots. They're people. Mm -hmm. Um, And and they live in this um, M78 uh, nebula. And their home world somehow has access to various dimensions, various realities. And so it is possible for these characters to jump from, from their home dimension 
to the dimension of another Ultraman who's been living his life and doing his heroic deeds in a completely different reality, a completely different universe. And that allows them to team up <laughs> from time to time. Yeah. Similar, I guess, to, to what happens with the Power Ranger characters. And once we find the exact mechanism, the kind of quantum mechanics of, of how that works, it becomes the explanation. You know, so here's how uh, here's how it works. But it wasn't easy to find. <laughs> it's, it's something that's mentioned in an episode somewhere in the middle of this 50 year continuity. <laughs> but it's cool. Instead of us just making up something, we look for it and, and somebody somewhere thought of it. And that's what it is. And, and that allows us to to proudly wave our geek flag. <laughs> and I assume with other franchises, sometimes there isn't that mechanic. And you guys suggest ideas of introducing mechanics like that into uh, certain universes. Uh, that's correct. In uh, in Men in Black, there was some, uh, some trickiness with regard to how time travel worked in, in Men in Black 3. So uh, uh, we talked with the producers about uh, the various kinds of time travel that existed to try and find a, a way to make it work in, in the script before the, uh, the picture was made. And I think, uh, I think it, it, it worked out fairly well. But we do the same thing in, in the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise with regard to how that compass worked and how the dog with the keys managed to get all over the place mm -hmm. <laughs> um, in, in that series and, and so forth. That's, that's the fun part. And we love to, uh, to come up with uh, uh, those kinds of unique ideas that still remain kind of organic to the reality of the universe that we're working with. So especially with franchises like this, especially something like Ultraman that has sort of created more or less piecemeal throughout the, you know, it's like you're basically welding on a bunch of different things on top of each other. Is it basically you're digging so deep to be able to find some kind of method to the madness in all of it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. Um, the, you know, there were some series in the Ultraman continuity where the showrunner, because, you know, there's a, a producer responsible for getting the job done for, for some years at a time. And there have been producers who were really interested in that kind of continuity. And so they would reference past series and other Ultramen and explain a few things because it, it tickled them to, to be able to do so. And wow, that's like a goldmine for us. Uh, mm -hmm. We were able to take a lot of the, um, uh, the answers from that, that aspect of, of the show. But yeah, yeah, that's, that's exactly what we do. We, we look around because when you find it within the intellectual property, what could be better? Um, it, it makes the, the creator happy because they say, oh, it was, it was there all along and we didn't see it. Uh, sure, go ahead, use that. And then is there ever a time where, especially because, you know, you're talking about like, you know, quantum mechanics of time travel and anything like that. And obviously us geeks like that, we think about that a lot. We think very deeply about these sort of things. Have you ever experienced something where you're talking to people behind a brand or something who are like, why are you thinking about it so in depth? Or is that, I mean, or is that just, that's why they're hiring you? <laughs> oh, that's a good question. And you're going to get me into trouble. Um, <laughs> you don't have to name names, uh, but if you want to, it's uh, fine. <laughs> once in a while, we are told, um, 
I, I love this one. Isn't that a little bit too academic? <laughs> <laughs> like you're doing a dissertation. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and sometimes they have a point. We get a little too carried away. It's, it's, uh, it, it becomes hyper complex. So we have to kind of, um, we don't um, uh, betray our instincts about these things. We just use simpler language. Mm. <laughs> but sometimes, you know, when we stay on with the property, because there are some uh, projects that, that we're, we're, we stay with for years at a time, we become resources. So if a publisher wants to publish a series of novels about Pirates of the Caribbean, They'll call us and go, you know, we're thinking of using this mythological character in, in the Pirates novels. Does that sound right to you? And then we can really be geeky and go, now, <laughs> um, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean allows for the nautical myths of, mm. of various mythologies to be integrated into its universe. Uh, but we would advise against... Um, you know, throwing Zeus in there or Hercules or, or something like that. So the, the, the best you can give us is, is Poseidon, <laughs> you know, and, and that's what helps to maintain the integrity of these uh, complex uh, story worlds. And has there ever been a time you've been working on a franchise long enough that you sort of have, you have an idea of how it works and you're like, all right, we figured it out. And then somebody comes in and they're like, hey, we just made this TV show or movie with something that totally breaks it. What do you do then? <laughs> You're talking about Michael Bay <laughs> and Transformers. <laughs> we, we would say, you know, guys, Michael Bay is, is d defying everything we just wrote. And they go, well, he's Michael Bay. <laughs> <laughs> and um and that's fine you know we um we understand that um uh, just like in marvel comics and so forth there are certain things that happen that kind of break things and uh, and sometimes it's our job to win the no prize <laughs> you know to try and somehow explain how that can be <laughs> um within the context of the rest of the continuity um uh, so it, it's okay. We're we're not the police. Um, mm -hmm. uh, we defend and protect the integrity of the story world as a whole, but we understand that there are going to be these small discontinuities and uh, and actually invite fans to help us figure out how to make it work. <laughs> for sure, for sure. And then, so with Ultraman, going back to that again, mm -hmm. once you once you you know, put together the whole mythology document, do you then include what you had talked about with some of these other things, like sort of ideas of where to go with it based on everything that you learned assembling this probably for Ultraman 10,000 page document? We call those distant mountains. Mm. Um, and, uh, and we do that for every single uh, project that we work on. And that is tremendous fun. It's the thing off in the distance that that's intriguing or the thing that you just kind of pass by in the story um, that makes you excited and goes, well, what's that over there? A Tolkien uh, coined that term to distant mountains because his editors would complain. He'd go, they'd go, uh, Mr. Tolkien, your, your characters are walking across this giant land and um, they're pointing out things left and right that uh, have nothing to do with the battle. 
aren't you diminishing the suspense by taking so much time <laughs> and pointing all these things out about the history of the land and, and, and so forth of Middle Earth? Um, and Tolkien's response was, listen, if I don't tell you who is on that distant mountain and what their lives are like, or, or on the mountain behind that distant mountain and what those people are like and what they aspire to and hope and dream about, then how is this, how is Middle Earth worth fighting for? You know, mm-hmm. um, uh, we, we need to believe that this world is real and filled with um, uh, people who are like ourselves, who hope and dream and bicker and, um, and, and are just trying to kind of get by in life so that we realize that this world is worth saving. And so we take those distant mountains in, in uh, uh, something like Ultraman. Ultraman has hundreds of them, um, yeah. you know, and it's strange because you you have 50 years of, of story uh, and yet where are these monsters coming from? Yeah. <laughs> what, what do they want? <laughs> where do they go when, when they're destroyed by, by Ultraman? It seems like they don't just, their carcasses are not lying around. Yeah. Um, there'd be too many to, to deal with. So what's happening with, with all that? Well, those are distant mountains that uh, are worthy of exploration. And that's what makes the upcoming negotiation with the comic book people or the video game people or the app people. That's what makes it fun because we can not just invite them to repeat the same formula that we see in these Ultraman shows. We could say, hey, how about exploring these aspects of the universe that are really kind of intriguing and that the hardcore fan base really would love to to know about? and yet would still make a compelling story to someone new coming in. And that, ma- that makes the, um, the potential partners uh, for this upcoming Ultraman licensing program, uh, that's what makes them really excited. And then, because you're creating this document, and I'm sure it will obviously be used by the Japanese company, so it is a matter of creating a document that can work both for in a country where Ultraman is very well known, like you said, like Mickey Mouse, and also for someone who has absolutely no idea about Ultraman besides, oh, he's got that thing on his chest and he fights giant rubber monsters. <laughs> um, it's, not, it's not that easy, but, mm-hmm. but these documents have to serve uh, both purposes, and it's why we're kind of making them modular. So if you were to line up the pages from beginning to end, this thing could be like 500 or 600 pages, but through the, the magic of the PDF, <laughs> we're, we're going to be able to, to mix and match uh, uh, this uh, information to uh, assist all kinds of, of different people who have a stake in the future of Ultraman. Right on. So then just sort of kind of uh, starting to wrap it up a little bit. Mm-hmm. What are you, what do you want to say to all the Ultraman fans listening out there? People who, especially in America, have been like, oh, there hasn't been that much Ultraman around here. Like, what do you have to say to them? I would say uh, get ready because Ultraman's coming back. And that the people who are involved, both on the Japanese side and the American side, they love this character. We love this character and, uh, and want what's best for uh, him and understand the concerns that you have about the portrayal of Ultraman in uh, a more Western kind of uh, uh, media. So um, 
Uh, and the other thing I, I tell everyone, uh, everyone listening to this podcast, whether or not you're an Ultraman fan, it's that I personally am not a rocket scientist. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, I was able to figure it out to basically think about what it is that I wanted to do with my life and, and kind of get there somehow um, and realize dreams. And the, the key to that was the very things that we've been talking about all hour, which is to figure out how it works. What is making this thing so wonderful? Why do I love this? Um, how do I take what I love and make it make money for me and, and make me have a life of adventure where I get to go to Japan and touch the kaiju that I used to worship when I was a kid. <laughs> it's all in, in how you make the story go and, and how you, you come to understand that story is mutable and malleable and, um, and that there are distant mountains to pursue mm-hmm. um, and, and go after them. So it's a matter of, of breaking the fourth wall, so to speak, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, and pursuing it. All right. All right. And then is there anything that you want to add, like any other projects that you or your company is working on that you would like to plug or talk a little bit about or anything that you like? I would love for um, uh, if, if anything that I've said resonates with you as a listener, I'd love for you to, to join my social media. I'd love to hear from you. So um, uh, my Twitter is at Jeff underscore Gomez. Mm-hmm. My uh, website is starlightrunner.com and Facebook is uh, 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 Facebook slash transmedia, or you can just look up Jeff Gomez and you'll, you'll find us. And um, by keeping me humble, by uh, allowing me to join the greater fan community, I'll never fall out of touch with what touches our hearts and makes us love the things that we, we love. And that's what makes us geeks. All right, all right. Well, my good sir, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Bring me back whenever you like. We're very grateful for Jeff Gomez for joining us. I am absolutely fascinated by this whole transmedia thing. And the fact that it's been done with all these different franchises that we had no idea about, the fact that somebody's out there going to these companies and recommending, hey, here's this cool idea from this really obscure comic that makes it all work together. Who knew that sort of thing was happening? You know, we at Den and Geek, we always talk to actors, writers, producers, directors, and all of those people that you normally hear about. But someone working in transmedia, somebody who's suggesting all of those things, it's great to know that there are people who are so involved and dedicated to these franchises who are thinking just like you or I do. And it's really great to hear that Jeff is that dedicated to Ultraman and bringing Ultraman to the States and all around the world and also really helping people understand it. That's something that we as geeks talk a lot about, right? It's like, oh, do the people making this understand it and get it? Well, at the very least, we know that at least for some franchises, there's at least somebody speaking up for us and who really understand it. Gosh, I would love to get a look at that book, all 100,000 pages of it, all about Ultraman. I feel like I would learn a lot, probably more than Wikipedia. Let's not lie to ourselves. But that'll wrap up things for this episode. Come back in two weeks for the next edition of the podcast, and we'll break through the fourth wall once again to talk to another creator or performer behind the entertainment that you love. Remember to follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US. My name is Seamus Kelly, and you can follow me at Ryder Jetfire on Twitter. Find more content at denofgeek.com, and thanks! 
Join us again next time, Beyond the Fourth Wall.